Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Today I am joined by Dr. Art Cardin to discuss his book, Strangers with Candy, subtitled Observations from the Ordinary Business of Life. Dr. Cardin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Usually when people think about economics, they think about the Dow Jones, the unemployment average. Uh, you, on page 266, define it as the study of choice. Why is economics the study of choice? So one of the economic errors that so many of my students commit and that so many other people around commit is thinking that economics is about money. But anytime people are choosing, they're engaging in some sort of economic exercise. Economics is about comparing costs, however we choose to define them, to benefits, however we choose to define them. And they need not necessarily be measured in money. And once we start thinking about the world in those terms and start thinking about economics in those terms, we get what I think are some really surprising and sometimes beautiful conclusions and explanations. When it So we can look at uh, India obviously has an economy, billions of people interacting, trading. But yeah. you're also saying that Robinson Crusoe on the island by himself faces economic choices. How does Caruso uh, face economic decision making? So one of the most important and fundamental aspects of the world we live in is scarcity. There is never enough of everything to do everything that we want with it. Like everybody faces scarcity. Elon Musk faces scarcity. Like there's something he's not doing because he doesn't have an extra hundred bucks with which to do it, even if that's just give it away. Um, Robinson Crusoe, when he's choosing, even though there aren't any monetary transactions taking place, he's having to decide whether he wants to give up the opportunity to, say, eat fish right now so that he can do something else. So let's imagine that he's, he's trying to decide whether or not he wants to um, increase his catch a little bit later. Maybe he decides to store up some fish. He chooses not to eat some of those fish that he's caught so that he can sustain himself while he's uh, fashioning a net or fashioning a shelter or fashioning something else, he's making a choice. He's giving up something. He's bearing a cost, which is the enjoyment of fish right now, for a benefit, which is more fish later. So even though no money is changing hands, even though there's not another person out there, he's still making economic choices. What if an organization has a monopoly on the currency and they can basically <coughs> just print an unlimited amount of money? Uh, would this is this sort of uh, overriding this uh, economic theory? And is this actually a way to make college free, healthcare free by having one group monopolize the money supply and then distribute uh, the money in basically any fashion they want? How does the money monopolist face costs and constraints? Well, so it doesn't invalidate the theory. They just the, the money monopolist just responds to a different set of incentives than most other people. And one of the things that that, is, that separates government from markets is that governments or people acting in governments generally don't face a very serious cost for being wrong. In the case of a, a, an entity that monopolizes the issue of currency, they can't make anything free by simply printing more of it. Printing more money is just a way of taxing everybody else by taking, for example, let's see here. But this dollar, which was printed in so series 2017, it says, as a result of the fact that um, the currency monopolist in the United States, that being the, the U.S. government, um, has printed more of these. The fact the Federal Reserve has created more of these means that this won't buy as much as it did in 2017. So somebody else's quote unquote free college 
is being paid for by everybody who holds these or who's held on to them for a few years. What is credential inflation? Credential inflation is a really interesting phenomenon. If you probably heard people say, or like when I was growing up, uh, people said that having a college degree is like having a bachelor's degree was to the previous generation. Now we're telling people having a master's degree is like having a college degree was, um, you know, when we were, when we were coming up. Credential inflation describes a pretty interesting phenomenon in that we're kind of running to stand still. So it's not so much that people need the skills that they're acquiring with a master's degree in order to do what they could have done with a bachelor, excuse with a bachelor's degree. It's that they need these additional signals and these additional additional credentials to separate them from everybody else. In his book that was published a few years ago, the economist Brian Kaplan argued that about 80% of the return to the return on investment in schooling comes from uh, people acquiring signals people separating themselves from the rest of the pack rather than people uh, rather than people acquiring new skills. And one of the thought experiments that he uses, I think is pretty interesting. So if you imagine two people, um, Alice and Bob, and they're identical in practically every way, Alice and Bob, they take the exact same courses, they get the exact same grades. It just so happens that Bob wakes up a little bit late one morning and forgets to file his graduation paperwork. So Alice gets her degree, Bob doesn't. Okay, Alice is going to have a much, 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 much better life, at least in terms of higher earnings and things like that, than Bob will because she's got the degree. That's going to open more doors. Now, Alice and Bob might have exactly the same education and have learned exactly the same things, but simply by virtue of having that credential, Alice is going to be better off. The credential is what separates one group of people from another. And to the extent that we're subsidizing these credential arms races, we're, well, quite literally, well, not now, <laughs> quite literally is the wrong way to put it. We're um, running to stand still. I uh, had Brian uh, Kaplan on the show and I was talking uh, to yeah. him about uh, the uh, case against education. And I, you know, was kind of skeptical about uh, the case against education in general. And he asked me, what would you rather have? the college education without the degree or the degree without the education. And I said, all right, you proved your thesis. Let's right. move on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what are incentives? Why do they matter? So incentives are rewards and punishments for doing different things. And they matter because people respond to them. If you increase the rewards from doing something, then people are going to do more of it. If you increase the punishments, from doing more of something, people are going to do less of it. And it's not just people. This is something that, that, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, pretty much every living being responds to incentives, albeit not necessarily consciously. There's a uh, something that went around the internet a few years ago. It was a, a, an article from February 1908 in the New York Times. And it was a story about a dog in Paris. And so some kids had fallen into the river in Paris. And the dog had jumped in and saved them. So like Lassie, you know. Dog jumps in, saves the kids. Everybody's happy. So they give the dog a steak. And then apparently this happens again. Then it happens again and again and again. And it's discovered that after the dog has gotten the steak the first time or the second time or whatever, the dog discovers, you know, if I pull kids out of the water, I get steak. So the dog starts pushing kids into the river so that it can jump in and, and save them. So this is an example. This is an example of dogs responding to incentives. The... Uh, Example I put to my students the other day 
is you know our dog at home. We have a, a black lad named Lucy. So the dog hangs out in the living room when my wife is cooking. Um, she hangs out right at my feet when I'm cooking. And I ask, how's this responding to incentives? And the reason is my wife knows what she's doing and doesn't drop food. I don't, and I do. And there's, you know, the dog, the dogs, they're responding to those incentives. Everybody and everything responds to incentives, which again, are just the changing cost and benefits of different actions. Here is a, another example where uh, we're always told that uh, something applies in general, but does not apply to politicians. People say, well, uh, when you're the CEO of a company, you just want more power and money. But right. when you're in the uh, state sector, well, then your incentive is to uh, increase the well-being of the overall population. How do politicians respond to incentives and how do voters respond to incentives? Ah, very poorly. So politicians, politicians' goal is to get elected and stay elected. Now, this need not be cynical. This need not be cynical. Maybe they want to do all sorts of great things, but they can't do all sorts of great things without getting elected and staying elected. This means that they have to provide policies that people are that people are willing to vote for. And a lot of times these policies simply don't make any sense, at least from a broad economic perspective. But people will vote for them because they benefit a special interest, their special interest, at the expense, perhaps, of everybody else. So politicians respond to incentives, where those incentives are called votes. People in the voting booth respond to incentives in that, like I said a minute ago, uh, one of the differences between markets and states is that people operating on behalf of the government generally don't pay a particularly large price for being wrong. People don't pay a particularly long pri large price for being wrong when they're in the voting booth. So we have uh, here in Birmingham, Alabama, we have a, a municipal election coming up at the end of September. Um, so I've seen some signs around at the park. And I'll be honest, like, I don't know who any of these people are. Um, they might have some catchy slogans and things like that. Um, first, I have no incentive whatsoever to really read up on who they are, what they're doing, what their policy proposals are, how those policies are going to affect anything because my vote is almost certainly not going to determine the outcome of the election. Now, since it's a municipal election, um, it's a little bit more likely than it would be for it to, uh, for my vote to determine the outcome of a presidential election, but it's still pretty low. I face effectively no incentive to look beyond who's got the coolest slogan and kind of no matter what I do, we get the policies that we get the policies that we get. I can inflict massive damage on the rest of the city by voting for whoever promises to, you know, devote more resources to cleaning up my park, even if that's not the socially best use of resources at trivial cost to myself. I walk down to the library, I go in, I show them my driver's license, I vote, you know, we're done. So, so now go ahead. Oh, uh, I was going to say, so this is the theory of rational ignorance, mm -hmm. correct? Right. Yeah. So rational ignorance is the idea that people people respond to incentives and they're rationally ignorant of the effects of the different policies that people are proposing and the effects of the different policies that they themselves might endorse. Because once again, they uh, they uh, they obtain effectively no benefit from, quote unquote, getting informed, even though it might be extremely costly to do so. So think about. Uh, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal this morning about um, the about policies working at cross purposes, specifically tariffs 
and then subsidies aimed at, first of all, protecting American manufacturers of environmentally friendly uh, goods, and then second, aimed at reducing the costs for these sorts of firms. So these are, so these, these are, these are policies that are operating at cross purposes. Um, really understanding why they're operating at cross purposes and how that requires, you know, understanding a thing or two about how the world works. And frankly, in a lot of cases, I'd rather go upstairs and play Madden on the Xbox. Um, since I obtain effectively no meaningful benefit for myself beyond just sort of the, the pleasure of knowing what I'm talking about or the, or just the simple fact that I'm a weirdo who enjoys this kind of stuff. Um, I am generally going to, if I go into the voting booth, going to be very poorly informed about who's running, what they stand for and how, what they stand for will affect the world I live in. And once again, I pay effectively no cost for being poorly informed about it. So getting informed is expensive. Being informed has no meaningful payoff. Therefore, people tend to remain extremely uninformed. The book is Strangers with Candy, Observations from the Ordinary Business of Life. Find it in the description below. In the book, you mentioned the term all else constant. What does yeah. this mean? What are the implications? Yeah, so um, this is one of the essential tools in economic analysis. The first thing that we do when we're talking about how changes, changes in prices or changes in incomes or things like that affect this thing or that thing is we make this assumption that everything else is held constant. So the only thing that's changing in the world, say, might be the price of electricity. And what this does is this allows us to isolate the really important moving parts in any story that we're telling. So take housing. For example, um, I was sitting at lunch yesterday with some colleagues and um, we were talking about housing regulation in Birmingham and elsewhere, where, of course, like every city in the country, it's not prohibitively expensive, but it's, it's difficult to build high density multifamily housing. Uh, it's a lot more difficult than it probably should be. A lot of a lot of the area around Birmingham is zoned for single single family detached housing. And I mentioned that, well, if you hold everything else constant, increasing the supply of housing means lower housing prices, okay? And that's strictly true. One of the people I was sitting at, at, at lunch with said, well, what if everything's, everything else is not held constant? Okay, well, it's true. Then that might be a slightly more, more complicated situation, but it doesn't invalidate the proposition that increasing the supply of housing means lower housing prices. Now, there might be a lot of other things going on that might... Um, be leading to higher demand or what have you, so that it would be very difficult to isolate the effect of the increased supply of housing on prices. But one of the things that we one of the things that we can know from carefully and well done economic theory, and then also honestly from looking at the data, is that if you increase the supply of something, holding everything else constant, the price of it goes down. So we could even see this uh, on the individual level of if I get $100 more a day after seven days, I might have $700, assuming I don't increase my spending. So, but because there's all these other things happening in the background, it's impossible to have these uh, controlled experiments. So in economics, the only thing you can do or the primary way you want to approach things is by holding everything else constant. Uh, d does this separate economics from other sciences or are other sciences just as fallible? 
Um, I think every science and every every system or every every body of systematic inquiry um, is extremely fallible. Economics economics has become pretty sophisticated um, at a very basic level. Holding everything else constant allows us again to isolate the really important moving parts when we're talking about. Um, a policy or a choice or an action or if a company's going to introduce a new product or uh, or something like that. And in fact, there there are fairly sophisticated models now where you can have a bunch of moving parts, a bunch of, thing ha- bunch of things happening at, um, at the same time. And then there's also a lot of really interesting work and a lot of really interesting advances in the analysis of data, allowing people to... Um, identify what are called natural experiments. So uh, an example might be something like there's a paper from a few years ago looking at the return on investment in a degree in economics. And they argue that there's kind of a natural experiment where you've got at at a particular university, there's a cutoff, like your GPA has to be a 3.0 in order to major in economics, we'll say. And I I can't remember exactly what the cutoff was, but let's assume it's a 3.0. Um, so there are people who have like a 2.99 and people have a 3.01. So um, it's at least plausible that that's effectively random. So they can actually look at, so they actually look and say, well, okay, so the treatment effect of having an economics degree is a few extra thousand dollars a year or something like that. If you compare these people who are just barely on either side of the line. So the empirical work is, is pretty interesting. And then uh, there's a whole field of experimental economics um, pioneered by an economist named Vernon Smith at Chapman University, where people have done a lot of really fascinating work on, uh, well, first of all, just sort of looking to see the degree to which things like the law of demand hold. And lo and behold, surprise, surprise, it does. And then also looking at how people respond to different sets of incentives. One of my colleagues here at Sanford, uh, Joy Buchanan, one of her co-authors, has a really interesting paper uh, that was published in the European Journal of Political Economy last year, um, where they do an interesting experiment and they show that you know people talk about how they want more equality, they want more equality, they want more equality. They're willing to pay more to get more equality if they're paying with other people's money. So this is something that, first of all, may, it's plausible, it makes sense, and then second, they can actually quantify it and see, okay, to what extent, at least in the laboratory, does it look like people are willing to do there is a great contradiction that uh, m- most of the progressives uh, go around uh, pr- promoting. They say, look, if you need a license to vote, this is going to hurt people who have uh, you know, the least amount of resources, the least amount of education, those in vulnerable situations. Also, uh, if you want to have a job, you should have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars an hours in order to get right. an occupational license. So on page 97, you talk about occupational licensing mm-hmm. could have some benefits. You know, you could get a higher uh, quality product than you otherwise would. However, there are some costs. There are some downsides uh, to this government stamp of approval. What are some of those downsides? What are the alternatives uh, that the free market can provide to occupational licensing? So the downsides are just lower quantity and higher prices. Right now, um, uh, one of the the many, many major policy issues the world is facing is the high cost and relatively low quantity of childcare. So it's extremely expensive to put kids in daycare, and there aren't as many daycares as people might at first think, or as as people, people might want in some sort of alternative world where we have slightly different institutions. 
One of the reasons for this is because the, the rules and regulations governing daycares are extremely detailed, excuse me, extremely detailed and extremely burdensome. So about, a, about 10 years ago or so, I was doing some work on uh, occupational licensing in Tennessee and actually looked at some of the some of the daycare regulations in Tennessee. And like they've got rules defining this is what a snack is like for purposes of the law, for purposes of the regulation. Like if it's this, it's a snack. If it's outside these parameters, it's not a snack. And I'm like, look, anyone who's ever been around kids knows what a snack is. But to have to codify this, this, first of all, seems absurd. And second, just piles on additional costs for people who might otherwise open daycares. Now, then. Do the daycares that we have, or the daycares we have, are they of much higher quality? Yes, they are. But that's like passing a law saying you're not allowed to drive anything of lower quality than a BMW or a Cadillac. You're sure we would all drive higher quality cars, but that would hurt someone like me who'd have to give up my 2012 Toyota Corolla or 2006 Honda Pilot and spend a lot more money to have much nicer cars. Now, then for someone at uh, so like at our income level, that's, you know, it, it's going to hurt, but, you know, we could probably pull it off with a little bit of, of creative accounting. For people of much more modest means, however, this is a bit of a disaster. So um, a rule saying you have to have a license and you have to pass all of the clear all these different quality hurdles um, hurts primarily people, again, of relatively modest means. Let's take hair, for example. So. I can afford to pay a little bit extra. I can afford to pay a little bit more for a haircut than I would without occupational licensing. For, again, somebody who's counting change at McDonald's to see whether or not they've got enough money to buy a cup of coffee, that's a much, much, much bigger and much more serious problem. On page 105, you talk about transaction costs. Mm -hmm. What are transaction costs? Why do they matter? Transaction costs are the cost of arranging transactions, surprisingly. And uh, the way that Michael Munger puts it, and uh, if you've ever listened to Econ Talk, you, you, you probably know who Michael Munger is. So he argues that there are three types of transaction costs. There, there's triangulation, which is finding people to trade with. There, uh, there is transfer, which is moving money and moving goods. And then there's trust, which is verifying the integrity of what's being traded. And trust is a really interesting one um, because actually knowing whether or not you can trust the people you're trading with or trust the people who are offering you something is a bit of a naughty problem. Um, in fact, yesterday in, in my principles of macroeconomics class, we talked about this a little bit and I pointed out something a little bit weird. So you notice like two things our parents told us when we were growing up. First, don't take candy from strangers. Don't take candy from strangers. Second, don't get in a car with strangers. And yet we regularly take candy from strangers. You might put money in a machine owned by a stranger that will then dispense a candy bar produced by a stranger, which you will then devour with, with great relish and great joy. Why? Well, to, to, to a certain extent, there are regulations that, um, that help to ensure that our Snickers bars are safe. The Food and Drug Administration does some stuff. But by and large, it's because of the brand name. It's because Eminem Mars knows if they're poisoning people with Snickers bars, they're not going to sell any more Snickers bars. The brand name, the brand name reduces transaction costs, um, helps to helps to verify the integrity of what's being traded, and makes it possible for us to take candy from strangers without giving it a second thought. 
Think about getting in a car with strangers as well. We do this all the time now. Um, you open, you pick up your phone, a couple of flicks of your thumb, and some a stranger shows up in a car to drive you to the airport or drive you wherever you want to go. And once again, firms like Uber and Lyft have created mechanisms to reduce transaction costs and to make it so that you can actually trust the person, uh, the, the person who owns the car you're getting in, to actually get you where you say you need to go um, without getting you killed or murdered or um, giving you a, like a sort of a, a very, very scenic tour of the city, say. Is it fair to even concede that we get higher quality with regulation because we get so fewer choices? So if I if the regulations are raised, we have mm -hmm. a lower supply of the good than we otherwise would. Right. That means people in that position know they mm -hmm. face less competition than they otherwise would under lower barriers yeah. to entry. So isn't it possible that even with all this regulation, we could mm -hmm. not just get higher prices, but also worse quality than we otherwise would under free exchange? So that's one of the one of the benefits, so to speak, of having a monopoly. So it's been said that the best of all monopoly profits is a quiet life. So maybe you don't uh, you don't have to work as hard to please your customers once you get over once you get over the hump and once you get over the barrier. Um, there's I, I don't know the state of the empirical literature on this, but it is it's at least plausible. Um, on one hand, on one hand, the fact that everybody else in the cartel that's created by the licensing regime could sick the regulators on you and pull your license might uh, induce you to provide relatively high quality. On the other hand, though, if you know that if you know that there aren't any competitors around, then, yeah, you can probably cut corners a little bit. Um, so I have tenure as an economics professor. And um, I'll be honest, it is a little bit tempting to cut corners and say, well, you know, look, I, I basically, you know, I've got a, a job for life. And I know that there's no one coming for my job. Maybe I can kind of phone this one in. You know, that's that's almost certainly the case in regulated industries. Now, with respect to the overall quality of life that we have, I think you're exactly right. It's almost certainly lower. So think about haircuts again. Um, each haircut I get might be slightly better, but I get fewer haircuts. And thus, the the, the equilibrium hairstyle for me it's kind of like the mess that you see right now, rather than something uh, something much uh, much more clearly professionally and very very well done. Yeah, uh, the example that comes to mind is Walter Williams wrote a book, Race and Economics, yeah. and I think it was published in two thousand eight. And he mentioned that the cost of a taxi cab medallion in New York City, the license to drive a taxi, was up to like one point three million dollars. Yeah. Right. So so few people could buy it that they had to rent the car, they had to rent uh, the medallion, get it from someone else, and then they had to take out these loans and constantly make payments. And he could not have foreseen the things like Uber and Lyft. Right. which everyone loves by virtue of mm -hmm. the fact that they constantly use it far more often. Yeah. And I swear the quality is better with it. Maybe I'm just thinking in favorable terms, but I remember taxis in San Francisco yeah. and New York oh. City just being miserable to deal with more or less. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I um, remember very, very well the, the, the discussion that we had in Birmingham about whether or not to allow Uber and Lyft into the city. <sighs> and the, tax, you know, the taxis were terrible. Like the taxis were terrible. Um, Uber and Lyft are just so much better than taxis in so many different ways and on so many different margins. 
Um, just to use an example, like have you ever gotten in an Uber in a Lyft and they've had like a bottle of water or like a little tray of mints or something like that? They got a phone charger for you. I've never in my life gotten in a taxi and been offered a bottle of water or a mint or been told, hey, I've got a phone charger here if you need it. Like the quality of the ride you get from ride sharing services is so, so, so much better. And the convenience of being able, again, just to, to basically call a ride with a few flicks of your thumb is incredible. Among the really big beneficiaries of this are people who don't drive or can't drive or might have trouble driving. So, uh, so my father just turned 69 years old and um, I had a hip injury a few months ago, so he can't drive. Um, he is nonetheless able to get around and able to be independent because he can, again, just a few flicks of his thumb, call a ride share, and that can get him to choir practice, or can get him to the grocery store, can get him to wherever he needs to go. And this is this is brilliant and beautiful, um, again, in ways that sometimes might be hard to appreciate, and that would not be possible with a taxi cartel. The book is Strangers with Candy, Observations from the Ordinary Business of Life. Check it out at Libertarian Christian Institute. Link will be in the description below. You mention in the book that uh, people are self-interested mm -hmm. and politicians also are yeah. people. For some reason, I yep. guess, uh, sometimes people think that government is like run by owls or trees right. or zebras <laughs> because, you know, people are self-interested, but we need uh, government to step in. When it comes to harmonizing such self-interest, mm -hmm. um, what are the benefits of the free market when it comes to harmonizing this universal principle that people are self-interested? And what are the downsides of dealing with self-interest in the political market? So in the, um, in the market space, self-interest is relatively easy to reconcile because everything is an exercise of persuasion. Everyone has the right to say no, or at least you recognize that everyone has the right to say no. And since someone has the right to say no, you have to offer them something that's better than the status quo or something that's better than what they already have. In the political marketplace, you can just force people to do, do what you want them to do. Again, in class, I talk about the, the difference between the difference between the market and the state is that in the market, people can get people get you to do what they want you to do by offering to increase your options, by offering to make your life better. For the state, they get you to do what they want you to do by saying, do it or we will lock you in a cage or shoot you. And that's not really an exaggeration. Self-interest is relatively easy to reconcile again in uh, the market space because everybody has to agree it's much more difficult to reconcile it in a manner that's not utterly pathological when we're dealing with the government because somebody who has control of all the guns can just tell everybody else what they want to do. It is, I think, in a lot of ways, fundamentally dehumanizing because, you know, again, if, if you're operating on the basis of the state, then you are not respecting other people's right or prerogative to say no to what you want them to do. Meanwhile, in the marketplace, you have to do that in order to get the things that you want. Now, when we talk about self-interest, um, the way that Adam Smith put it, and this is, this is a, I think, is, is much more profound than a lot of people think. In uh, a very famous passage in the, the Wealth of Nations, he writes that it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, and the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. 
it's important here that the, the phrase he uses here, the term he uses is own, is own interest. And the way that I think about this, the way everybody should think about this, is to understand that the butcher, the brewer, and the baker, they've got their own problems. They've got kids to feed. They've got a mortgage to pay. They've got to put gas in the car. They have this whole list of things that come with living in an imperfect fallen world where scarcity is where scarcity is a bonding constraint. And it is presumptuous um, for someone to walk into a bakery, stamp their feet and say, I'm hungry, feed me. Or to say, my kids are hungry, feed them. Well, you know, that, that doesn't respect the dignity of the baker. It doesn't respect the dignity of the brewer. It doesn't respect the dignity of the butcher. It seems to think that their interests, their kids, their communities don't matter as much as ours do. Now, what we, what we have to do in a commercial society, and I think this is, this is the way that, that sort of dignified entities interact. What we have to do in a commercial society is we have to take care of their kids in order to get them to take care of ours. And I think that's, that's profound. And I think it's beautiful. Walk us through Adam Smith's other example where he talks about how if a million people in another country die, you'll be sad, maybe for a day. But if you get your finger cut off, what, what is this uh, example? Yeah, so so the so the, the example that Smith uses is um, he points this out, and this is he argues this is just a fact. This is simply how people are. It's not to not necessarily to be limited. It's just a statement about how the world is. Um, let me let me look here. Okay, so there's an article here about um, the Godfather and the Kremlin. The very public death of Putin henchman Yevgeny Prigozhin highlights the evolution of Russia into a mafia state held together by violence and incapable of global leadership. Okay, so somebody's dead probably at the hand of Vladimir Putin and Russia is not the sort of place that uh, we'd want to live in right now. That's very, very sad. And it makes me sad. And I hope it makes you sad. And I hope it makes listeners and, and, and viewers sad. But Smith points out that these sorts of things happening on the other side of the world are not going to have the same sort of emotional impact as relatively trivial, relatively simple, relatively straightforward injuries we have for ourselves. So like, just, again, to use a, a very specific example, like I bit my lip a couple of days ago and it hurts like you wouldn't believe. Like it, it's, it's annoyingly painful. Um, and I'm so much more worried about that than I am about, you know, the, the development of, 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 of a Russian mafia state. Smith again argues this is simply a fact about the world. And one of the points that he makes as he's doing this analysis is that we don't really do much for people on the other side of the world simply by sitting and being sad. So there's not anything we could do, not really much we could do for folks in, in, in Russia who are living under Putin. Not much we could have done in the example Smith used specifically of the Chinese earthquake that kills uh, a million people. Um, it would be rather, uh, he would argue, just a way of consuming resources without producing any benefit if we let every tragedy happening around the world all the time affect us the same way that a very small tragedy might happen, uh, might happen to us. Okay. He doesn't argue, he doesn't argue that this is the way things should be. He doesn't argue that it's particularly great. He just says that this is the way things are. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, people will say, you know, I, I care about, uh, the masses, uh, not about, uh, you know, just individuals. And then they will watch Netflix while people are starving and yeah. while people live under tyranny and while people are sad and while people are suffering. And I actually think it could be a good thing. 
Imagine if, I think according to World Population Review, 167,000 people die every day across mm -hmm. the world. Yeah. Imagine if you were as upset about all those people uh, as you were about your mother or father right. dying. You yeah. could not ever do anything ever. So it would be miserable. So I think he's not only right empirically, but mm -hmm. uh, thank heavens that, uh, that, that right. he's right. On page 265, you talk about the principal agent problem. What mm -hmm. is this? So the principal agent problem is the simple fact that when you hire somebody to do something for you, they it may not be in their narrowly construed interest to actually follow through on the contract. So just to, to use an example, one of the classic examples of the principal agent problem is shareholders hiring executives. So the principal, who is the shareholder, wants the executive to maximize returns, obviously, because you know I, I own stock in various things. Um, I want that return because I want to do stuff with it. But the agent, the executive, might have a different set of interests. They might want to feather their own nest. They might want to, or well, obviously not might, want, might not might want to, they generally will want to maximize their own income. And so they may not do things all the time that are precisely consistent with the best interests of the people who are hiring them. And this is a, this is a, a really important and sort of fundamental problem. Uh, people have come up with all sorts of, of interesting and ingenious solutions that can help us solve some of these principal agent problems. Use just one example. Um, think about executive compensation. A lot of times, top executives at major corporations are going to be compensated with stock options. And the argument for that, the argument for compensating executives with stock options is that obviously you want the executive to increase shareholder, to increase the increase share, excuse me, create shareholder value and increase the value of the stock. Well, if they do that and a lot of their compensation is in the form of stock options, then higher stock price means a higher value of their stock options and therefore higher income and higher wealth. So this is one way that we've gotten, uh, one way that we've come up with to try to figure out or solve or fix the principal agent problem. When it comes to uh, the concept of uh, discrimination uh, being, or, or rather, got that backwards, when it comes to the existence of disparities being proof of discrimination, mm -hmm. you use the example of the World Cup. I want to take a different example. Walk me yeah. through the economics of thinking about this. So uh, I will make the claim here, according to WashingtonPost.com, mm -hmm. an overwhelming majority of people shot and killed by police are male, over 95 percent. More than half of the victims are between 20 and 40 years old, according to uh, Forbes magazine, 4,761 yep. men died on the job in 2017. 386 women died on the job in 2017. Here are two huge disparities. Therefore, men are discriminated against and young people are discriminated against. What, if anything, is wrong with the conclusion I drew from looking at that data? Well, I mean, the, the, fact, that it, the fact that it's wrong, uh, obviously, but there's something else going on. In a lot of cases, when, when we observe disparities, there's there's usually something else going on beyond just a mere taste for discrimination. There's something else that explains it. So you mentioned, for example, uh, and I saw that the uh, one of the things in your article was that men have about 13 times as much testosterone as women, which is, again, going to be it's one of the reasons why why men tend to make extremely rash, sometimes very violent decisions. 
Um, the police shootings you're talking about are not because the cops have a taste for shooting men. It's because men tend to do the things that are going to get them shot. So um, one of the examples, again, we talked about in, in my, my principles of, of macroeconomics class the other day was life expectancy. And if you're 19 years old and uh, a female, you have, I believe, 66.6 years left, according to the Social Security Administration. If you're a guy, you have, I think it's 62.1 years left. And this isn't because there's any sort of nefarious discrimination against men necessarily, where like God is saying, I don't like men as much as I like women, so I'm going to kill them off more quickly. It is, as you point out, um, a product largely of, for whatever reason, the fact that men tend to take a lot more risks. They tend to do the sorts of things that get them killed, either by the, uh, you know, say by the police in some of the examples you're talking about here or in the workplace. Almost all workplace fatalities are men. Almost all, as you point out, people shot by the cops are men. The vast majority of people in prisons and jails right now are men. The fact that men do, uh, the fact that men take a lot more risks means, first of all, we end up in jail and we end up, you know, we end up dead more frequently. Second, we end up in the kinds of jobs that are extremely risky, like logging and you know, fishing in Alaska and things of that nature. And this also helps to explain why there's a gender gap in income. Because there's a trade-off, there's a trade-off between risk and income. More risk, more reward. Less risk, less reward. Holding everything else constant, jobs that are riskier are going to tend to pay more than jobs that aren't. And this is one of the reasons why men tend to earn more than women. And it's one of the reasons why, again, we observe some of the disparities that we observe around the world. Thank you so much for being generous with your time. i got a few more questions for you. Um, sure. when it's so hard to appreciate, uh, how you can measure wealth when you're just looking at gross domestic product, the mm -hmm. numbers are just so big and vary right. that, uh, that they're almost meaningless. Seldom do they really, uh, grasp, uh, inflation. What are some really solid ways to measure wealth so we can see whether or not our uh, standard of living is increasing, sure. decreasing, or stagnating? Well, it's, it's, so I told my intermediate macroeconomics students yesterday that, you know, per capita GDP is for our purposes in the class, the meaning of life. It's incredibly imperfect, um, but it gets the job done for the most part. So again, while GDP, GDP per capita is um, fraught with problems, it's at least very highly correlated with all the stuff we would really like to be able to measure. So when we're talking about general changes in standards of living over time, um, <clears throat> GDP per capita is a pretty good first approximation, or wealth per capita is a pretty good first approximation. Now, the problems we have with things like GDP and measures of changes in prices are the fact that it's extremely difficult to adjust for changes in quality and to adjust for changes in um, the mixes of goods that are available to people. And there's no perfect way to do this. The consumer price index, for example, which is the, the measure of inflation people talk about on TV, tends to systematically overstate inflation because it doesn't really account for the fact that goods have substitutes. And real GDP figures, real GDP figures have to very imperfectly think about changes in technology. So to use just one example, so you kind of you see behind me, like I've got a bunch of books here in a bookcase. I probably have at least as much information, at least as many books on my Amazon Kindle, which 
you know, if I'm wearing the right pair of pants, like I can fit this in my pocket and I can carry around. Like I have, I have the complete Harvard classics on this. It's, it's not at all clear. It's not at all clear how, um, how to compare the world we live in today where you can carry the Harvard classics around, you know, on something you can keep in your pocket or, you know, shoot for that matter. I can keep it on my phone uh, to a world where you need, let's see, what is this? Let's say probably 25 or 30 square feet of shelf space to keep a much smaller amount of information. So it's imperfect, but it is, as they say, good enough for government work. Yes, and uh, the uh, Amazon Kindle is a, another example of uh, free market uh, environmentalism at work. Cell phones <laughs> getting much thinner and uh, more efficient. Uh, another example of free market environmentalism. What is the most important lesson you learned from reading the works of Thomas Sowell? Most important lesson I have learned from Thomas Sowell. There are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. I quote Sowell on this all the time. So Sowell, for example, argues that when people, when people want to, quote, unquote, solve environmental problems, well, there's really no such thing. All we're doing is we're having to decide whether we want to give up a little bit of one thing in order to get a little bit more of another. Let's take clean air, for example. So there's no solution to clean air. The question we're asking is, do we want to have slightly lower incomes in order to cough a little bit less? Or are we willing to cough a little bit more in order to have slightly higher incomes? And then moreover, um, a, lot of, a lot of times the policies that we make in order to solve one problem might in fact actually create other problems. In Germany, for example, several years ago after the, the Fukushima reactor disaster in Tokyo, they decided they were gonna phase out nuclear because they wanted to solve the nuclear problem which is basically making it so that no one's gonna die from nuclear radiation exposure. Well, okay, what is the substitute for nuclear? It's coal. And some economists looked at the numbers and estimated that there were an additional 31,000 deaths due to inhaled particulate matter um, over and above what they would have had had they just stuck with nuclear. So there are no solutions, they're only trade-offs. And again, this is, this is what, I, what I get from Seoul and what I keep hearing from Seoul, what I sort of keep very near and dear to my heart when I think about the man himself. Besides the case against education and rational irrationality, most important thing you learned from Brian Kaplan? Oh, dear. Most important thing I've learned, uh, learned from Brian Kaplan. Uh, there's so many things. because, um, Like, he is... So Seoul and Kaplan are probably the two people who are, who are most influential in my worldview. Um, I would say, besides... Rational irrationality and case against education. Honestly, I, I would say just from reading his blog and things like that, how to be a good dad. Um, you know, Brian Brian Kaplan is is you know from, from afar appears to be an amazing father, and has written pretty extensively uh, on econ log and elsewhere about sort of his philosophy about raising children. His book Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, which came out in 2011, I thought was was really good, really useful. And one of the arguments that he makes is that. Um, our ability to change our children, at least at a fundamental level, is pretty small. So we're not going to make our kids a whole lot smarter by buying them baby Einstein videos and things like that or by like putting a whole lot of pressure on them. So we might as well just enjoy the fact that they, you know, these are human beings created in the image of God. They have uh, they, they have they have uh, they're just incredible. 
And uh, obviously it doesn't mean complete laissez-faire, you know, complete do what they want, let them act as if they're raised by wolves. But um, I put, I put a, lot, a lot less pressure on myself as a dad um, in no small part as a result of reading, uh, reading Brian Kaplan's work. And preliminary returns are now that it seems like it's kind of paid off a bit. And most important lesson you learned from Ronald Coase. Most important lesson I've learned from Ronald Coase, transaction costs matter and people can find a way to trade. People can find ways to solve problems that might, at first glance, appear like they need some sort of centralized solution. So is getting to the root of transaction costs more or less the uh, source of the refutation of the Marxist exploitation theory, which says the bosses and the managers create no value. All they do is extract value. It's actually the workers who create all the value. Is his whole thing he doesn't account for transaction costs? Uh well, he doesn't really account for transaction costs, but I don't think transaction costs are central to any to a critique of Marx or Marxism. I think the the, the fundamental criticism of Marxism um, emerges from marginalism in the late nineteenth century, where people can where we came to understand that what creates value or the, the value of an hour of labor is what the addition what an additional hour of labor can produce, and then the conviction that things like managerial acumen or entrepreneurial acumen, in fact, actually create value. The, the notion that profits, um, or when people discover that profits are not some sort of rake off on the part of powerful people, but rather these are rewards to people who are creating value on net and losses or punishments to people who are destroying value on net. Final question. Sure. Um, a unique aspect of the free market is it's dog-eat-dog -dog, uh, competitive constantly, mm -hmm. and they constantly engage in manipulative advertising. Mm -hmm. What, if anything, is wrong with that thinking? Well, so first, um, people, people have a huge mistake about competition. So markets fundamentally are a cooperative enterprise. When people are competing, they're competing for the right to cooperate with somebody else. So Sanford University, for example, competes with Belmont University or Mercer University or something like that. Well, what are we doing? We're competing for the right or for the privilege of cooperating with potential students and potential faculty and others. So to call it dog eat dog, I think kind of misses the point. Um, if advertising were as manipulative as so many people think it is, there would be effectively unlimited fortunes to be had simply from increasing the amount of advertising in the world. Almost all the advertising that happens is purely informative, stuff like shop signs, and it's less than 2% of gross domestic product. So I think the, the argument that we're manipulating each other into buying a bunch of crap we don't want, there's a grain of truth to it, but I think it is, it is massively overstated and massively oversold. The book is Strangers with Candy. Thank you to Dr. Art Carden and the Libertarian Christian Institute for making this book available. Check it out in the link in the description. Dr. Carden, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it.